Second Kings chapter 5 this evening as we continue our journey through Second Kings together. Last time we began to look at this story where once again we saw the miraculous power and work of God taking place. We were told at the beginning of chapter 5 that a man named Naaman who was a commander of the army of Syria, who was an honorable man, it told us, that he was someone who was a man of valor. He was a courageous general in the Syrian army. The Lord had even blessed some of his efforts as he led Syria in battle. However, he had a major problem, and that was that he had the condition of being a leper an incurable human disease and we looked at how this process unfolded whereby God brought his healing and talked about how even this story is such a a beautiful illustration of salvation. Leprosy is oftentimes a, a picture or a type of sin in the Bible and how this story of the healing of this man who was a leper, Naaman, is a great illustration of how salvation comes about and how we can kind of look at it from a spiritual perspective. But this man in this condition had an incurable disease and yet we're told there was a young Jewish gal who was a slave, it seems perhaps like a prisoner of war that had been taken into this family and she was the servant of Naaman's wife and she spoke up to her mistress and said, if only my master could get to Israel and see the prophet of the one true God there, perhaps healing could come into his life. Well, being the valuable general he was, When the king of Syria heard about this, he granted instant permission for Naaman to go and travel to Israel. He loaded him down with a vast amount of wealth. We talked about there probably upwards to about a million dollars in modern uh, currency worth of gold and silver and precious metals, literally hundreds and hundreds of pounds of precious metals and uh, garments of clothing and all this wealth to go there thinking that this wealth would be able to be used to procure his healing. That if they went there with a lot of wealth, that perhaps somehow they could contract the services of this prophet of God and somehow curry the favor of Yahweh God to bring about a healing in his life. And remember when Naaman showed up, there was this process of dialogue between the servant Gehazi and uh, Elijah as Elijah sent him out and told him to go dip in the Jordan River seven times and that if he just obeyed that word of God in faith that his healing would come. Naaman initially was upset. He, in fact, was quite hesitant, but with a little counsel and prompting from his servants who were with him, he went down to the Jordan River and reluctantly, but yet willingly, he chose to just believe God's word in faith. He dipped seven times in the Jordan River and it wasn't anything special about the Jordan River. It was his faith in the promise and the word of God that was given to him that it says miraculously he was healed, his flesh was restored, the disease left him, he was made clean. And as a result of that, being full of joy now, he instantly became a believer in Yahweh God. We're told in chapter 8, verse 15, that he returned to the man of God and all his aids and came and stood before them and said, Indeed, now I know that there is no God in all the earth except in Israel. So instantly when a miraculous life change came about, his heart was tender towards God. He was awakened to believe that God was the one true and living God, the only God that existed. And like a typical person who was overwhelmed with gratitude and excitement, he just wanted to do something to pay back 
for the incredible thing that had happened in his life. And he was a man of great wealth. He brought all these resources, thinking he was going to have to purchase his healing from the people of Israel. But yet it tells us that in verse 15 there, he said, Now, therefore, please take a gift from your servant. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive nothing. And he urged him to take it, but he refused. Now, no doubt a couple of reasons Elisha particularly is refusing any gift, any reward, any compensation. First and foremost, it's because Elisha wants to make sure that he clearly understands that the healing and the powerful work of God that just happened in his life had nothing to do with Elisha and had everything to do with God. And if Elisha were to receive a reward or receive some type of remuneration for the work that God had just done in his life of powerfully healing him and changing his life, then it would look like to some degree that Elisha deserved the credit and he deserves some reward for it. And Elisha wanted to make sure, no, listen, the only one who deserves all the credit is the Lord himself. The Lord changed your life. That was a work of God's power that took place in your life. I think as well, Elisha wanted to make sure that he realized that this was a free gift and it was all of grace, just like salvation is a free gift, all of grace. And so because of that, he said, no, I, I, don't, I, I appreciate your, your enthusiasm, but I don't want your reward. It's not necessary. God did this freely for you because he loves you. It was an act of the grace and the goodness of God. And again, I think certainly no doubt that was important because in the same way that pictures salvation, the Bible says we're saved by grace through faith. It's a gift of God, not of works. There was nothing that needed to be paid for, nothing that needed to be kind of paid back. This was something God did graciously and Elisha wanted to make sure that was fully understood and let Naaman go home with just a pure, sincere heart of gratitude towards God. And this also shows that Elisha just had a very pure heart and a pure motive towards ministry. Now, with that as sort of our backdrop, we pick up in verse 20 after another little dialogue took place, but verse 20 is where we left off. And now notice what happens with Elisha's servant. It says, but Gehazi, verse 20, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said, look, my master has spared Naaman this Syrian while not receiving from his hands what he brought. But as the Lord lives, I will run after him and take, I don't like that word, take something from him. So, here we're going to begin to see with Gehazi, remember who was the servant of Elisha, or he's like Elisha's assistant. He participated in this process. He was the messenger that Elisha sent out with the word of the Lord to Naaman to tell him to go and dip in the Jordan seven times, and that's where his healing from God would come from. He is a part of this process, watches this whole thing unfold. He's present, and notice this servant of the Lord, someone who held a position of serving the Lord, has very unhealthy motivations. Because here we see that his heart is not pure like Elisha, the man of God, was. He has unhealthy motivations as a person who is in the Lord's work. And that becomes evidenced by what he does here. It tells us that he sees what happens. And notice, first of all, you can tell it doesn't even seem that he honestly even genuinely cares about people. Because he says, I can't believe my master has spared Naaman this Syrian. 
and that he didn't take his reward. In other words, how could he not you know, take a reward? He spared this pagan man from Syria, and you can almost sense in his heart that he doesn't genuinely care about people. Does he go through the motions of ministry? Yeah, it seems that he's going through the motions of ministry, but it really doesn't seem he cares very much about people that were actually being ministered to. He just cared about the role and the process, and he saw people, from what I see here in the text and the story going onward, it seems that Gehazi, though he had a position of serving in the Lord's work, he saw people as a resource. He didn't see people as those to be cared for, served, blessed, and ministered to. He saw people as a resource to get what he could out of them and to really utilize them to get where he wanted in his own life. And sadly, I hate to say, some of these kind of people are still in the Lord's work. And you have to use discernment, because not everybody who is serving in the Lord's work has a pure heart and a pure motive. In the same way that there are good and bad apples in, look, every industry, every business, unfortunately, the same thing does exist in the spiritual realm. And in the spiritual life, not everyone has a pure and sincere motive for why they are doing the Lord's work. And you can kind of sense here, again, the attitude that comes off the vibe from Gehazi. You can tell he's kind of questioning the decision of his own spiritual leader. He says, I can't believe my master did this. What is he foolish? I mean, I mean, the guy was offering him the world. He didn't take anything. I'm going to at least go get something from him. I mean, we deserve at least something, minimum wage or something out of this guy. And he says, I'm going to go and take some kind of gift because apparently Elisha doesn't have very good judgment. And so he's kind of, again, in this attitude of disrespect. There's no sense of a kind of respectfulness towards his own spiritual leader. He's questioning the person who God has put in a spiritual leader in his own life over him. He feels entitled to reward and payment. And that's always an unhealthy thing. It's never a good thing when you do God's work and you feel some level of entitlement that somehow you deserve something and you can just see a very self-seeking, self-serving attitude. He's willing to go and get what he wants. So verse 21 tells us Gehazi pursued Naaman as he's on his way back home now. And when Naaman saw him running after him, he got down from the chariot to meet him and he said, is all well. In other words, Naaman sees Gehazi running after him as he's on the way home with his caravan and you could tell Naaman is a man with a changed heart because all of a sudden now he cares about people you could tell his heart's been radically changed he stops he turns around and he says hey that's Gehazi is everything okay what happened and he why are you chasing and so all of a sudden you could tell God's changed his heart because he actually does care about people so he says what's going on is everything okay in verse 22, Gehazi said, all is well. My master has sent me. Oh, that's bad. Lie. My master has sent me saying, indeed, just now, two young men of the sons of the prophets from the school of ministry, he says. Two men, they just came from the mountains of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of garments. So Gehazi here just completely lies showing his dishonesty his deceptiveness again in his dealings with people he's not being genuine he tells a lie in worship he includes elisha in the process he says my master sent me i mean boy that's talk about throwing somebody else under the bus there he says my master sent me and he makes up this ridiculous story he says well you know two of the guys just came from the school of ministry and 
you know, they traveled a little ways and they're kind of a little low on resources and, and they kind of could use a little extra clothing. And, and I, you know, I mean, certainly not all that you brought. I mean, but, you know, hey, how about just a, maybe a change of clothes and a talent of silver for each one of them. And tragically, think how bad he's representing God here. It's almost as if he's conveying, look, I mean, yes, our God can heal leprosy. But he struggles sometimes keeping up with his bank account. I mean, sometimes he falls a little short. I mean, he can heal leprosy, but could you, could you help him out a little bit so he doesn't have to file bankruptcy? I mean, could you help us out here a little bit? And again, what is he doing? He is preying on a brand new, naive, enthusiastic convert to believing in God. And, and this is just tragic here. But again... If you're going to pray on somebody, not that I'm telling you to, this is an illustration. If you're going to pray on somebody, that's about the best person to pray on. Somebody who is a brand new convert. You find a brand new Christian, they are probably the most susceptible individuals to being manipulated and prayed upon. Why? Because they're so excited about what the Lord just did in their life, right? They're so thrilled that Jesus forgave their sins and their life has been changed and God loves them and, and they're just overflowing with gratitude. And, and, and at the same time, they're a brand new babe and they're like an infant. They're very naive and immature. And so you can very easily, if you're someone with very impure, unhealthy motivations, manipulate someone like that. And so here Gehazi is doing that. He makes up this whole story to begin to manipulate the vulnerability and the generosity of this very wealthy man who's just become a new convert. He says, could you help us out? And just, just something small. So look, Naaman, being so overwhelmed with gratitude, and he says, says to him, verse 23, please, he says, take two talents. I mean, one talent, take two talents. I mean, I brought way more than that. Again, he's so thankful so he gives above and beyond what's even asked. He says, not just one, take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver in two bags and with two changes of garments. And he handed them to his two servants and they carried them on ahead of them. Now, a talent is about 120 pounds. So that's quite a bit of uh, precious metal there. So no wonder this is why here he has to send some servants back because if you're talking two talents each times 120, well, at that point there, you're pushing almost 500 pounds. I mean, you're talking quite a bit of, of weight there. So he sends these servants back. They're helping bring all this stuff back to the area where Gehazi had come from along the road. And verse 24, look what happens. It says, when he came to the citadel, he took them from their hand and stored them away in the house, and then he let the men go, and they departed. So do you see what Gehazi does? Now he starts the little whole cover-up process. He lets them walk back with him, back to kind of around the edge of the city, if you would, and then when he gets to the spot where his little storage unit is, he says, you know what? Hey, I mean, yeah, I mean, that's, you guys have done far and above and enough. I appreciate you helping me carry all this precious metal all the way back to the city. But I'll tell you what, we got a little storage unit over here. Why don't you just put it in the storage unit? You can get back to your master, get back on your trip to Syria. I'll go get some of the sons of the prophets. They're strong men. They can help me carry the gold the rest of the way back to my master. And he basically does this whole cover-up thing because he wants to hide what he's doing 
because he's doing something behind the back of Elisha. He's hiding from his spiritual leader what he's doing and he actually thinks that he can cover up his sin and his wrongdoing and that nobody will be aware of what he's doing. Look, let me just say, whenever there is a need to begin to hide things and cover up things, that should be a red blinking light. You're doing something wrong. Because the Bible says that we're to walk in the light, that we're to live in the light. And if we are doing what we are supposed to be doing and our heart is pure and our motives are right and our actions are appropriate, there should not be any need to hide things, cover up things. And here you can tell that Gehazi is way off target because he's trying to keep what he's doing covered up. He's trying to make sure that no one is aware of his personal activities. And boy, all the more sad when somebody is actually serving in the Lord's work and they're hiding things and they're covering things up and they're doing things that are wrong and ungodly and inappropriate and immoral and taking advantage of people and they know what they're doing is wrong. So they're living a whole cover-up trying to keep it under wraps and keep it secret while they're doing what they're doing. Well, look, you can't hide anything from God, right? So he, he hides this stuff away. Look what happens. I mean, it's just a, must have been a classic story to have actually experienced this. Verse 25. Now he went in and he stood before his master. And Elisha said to him, first question, where did you go, Gehazi? And he said, uh, your servant didn't go anywhere. I just, no, I just, I just was out back. I just took a little stroll. That's all. I was cutting the lawn for you. I mean, that's, I didn't go anywhere. Right away, where did you go, Gehazi? What? Right, lies again. I didn't go anywhere. And then he said to him, imagine this, piercing. Did not my heart go with you when the man of God turned back from his chariot to meet you? Is it time to receive money, to receive clothing, olive groves and vineyards, sheep and oxen, male and female servants? Therefore, the leprosy of Naaman shall cling to you and your descendants forever. And he went out from his presence, leprous, as white as snow. So take notice what happens here. He comes in right away. He's confronted. Elisha being in touch with the Lord, hearing from the Lord, being the person that God has been utilizing, no doubt in Gehazi's life to even help him in his own spiritual journey, right away he discerns something's not right. And so he questions him. He says to him there in verse 25, where did you go, Gehazi? Now let me just say, there is God's mercy. Because God just gave a window for Gehazi to blow the whistle on himself. Where'd you go, Gehazi? God just gave an opportunity for him to confess and to repent on his own initiative to say, actually, I just did something I shouldn't have done. And actually, and just to spill his beans and to take full ownership and to just tell the story, God gave a window in his mercy because God wants to be merciful to us. He gives a window of his mercy to allow the opportunity because look, there's one thing to admit something after you've already been caught. Okay, that, that, that's, and that's good, but there's one thing to admit it after you've already been caught. It's a whole other thing to actually confess and admit and acknowledge something on yourself. Two vastly different things. 
And here, the opportunities available for him with just a simple program question, where did you go? He could have taken that, and no doubt, I, I am convinced that the Holy Spirit of God was prompting him just like he does us at times when we know that we need to confess or, or acknowledge something. But he opts not to do that. He lies again. He just keeps the pattern of deception. I didn't go anywhere. And then at that point, Elisha just calls him out by the spirit of the Lord's direction. He says, did not my heart go with you when you turned back to his chariot? And, and to me, I, I find that very beautiful. Did not my heart go with you? See, that was the difference between Elisha and Gehazi. Elisha ministered from the heart. He actually had a heart for people and he did it out of a pure heart and a pure motive. Interesting, isn't it? That he sees something in the realm of the spirit that only God could see and God reveals it to him. And what did Jesus say? Blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And, and, and that when the Lord does things, he doesn't keep things secret from his servants, the prophets. And, and God gives him revelation because his heart is pure. That was the problem is that Gehazi's heart wasn't in it. He was just going through the motions, but he had horrible motivations and his intentions were impure, though he was going through the. And so he says, did not my heart go with you? And then he reproves him. He says, look, is this a time to receive money and clothing? Calls him out for exactly what he did. But then notice he then goes on to say, and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servants. He didn't get any olive groves or vineyards or any sheep or any male or female servants. What does that show you? That shows you that Elisha is not only calling him out for what he did, taking the gold and the clothing, Elisha is also saying, beyond that, I see what intentions you have in your heart. I see what's going on in your mind. Your intention is to continue in this whole process of deception and stealing from people, and your heart is so greedy and so self-seeking, what you're thinking about, he doesn't tell him just what he did. He actually says, I know what you did, and I know what you're thinking about. <laughs> you're thinking about, wow, someday it'd be really great. I just keep getting a little more gold and stocking it away in my little storage unit over here. And eventually then I can get myself a nice little olive grove, and I can get myself a nice little place to live, and I can get my own servants, and I can really live the high life. And... And so God not only lays open and reveals what he did, catching him in the act, but God even says, I even see what are, what's in your heart. I see what your motives are. I see where you ultimately want to go with this. I see that your intentions are completely greedy and corrupt and kind of just identifies all those things. Talk about laying open your heart, <laughs> revealing what's going on in somebody's heart and mind. Now, question, how in the world does Elisha know that? Because... God knew. This is what we see and refer to at times in the Bible of the spiritual gift called the word of knowledge. 1 Corinthians 12 talks about some of the different manifestations of the spirit given to those who are servants of the Lord. And one of the gifts or manifestations of the spirit is called the word of knowledge. And the word of knowledge is not somebody who just has a lot of knowledge because they study the Bible a lot, and so they're a very knowledgeable person, and so once in a while they speak and they got a lot of knowledge. That's not what the word of knowledge is. The word of knowledge is that we serve an all-knowing God who knows everything, right? You can't hide anything from God, and God knows everything about every person. He doesn't only just know everything we do and everything that we've done. He even knows the things in our minds and our hearts that we want to do. 
God even knows motives and intentions and thoughts. He knows everything. So an all-knowing God at times by a miraculous work and manifestation of his spirit will take the knowledge that he has of a certain situation or individual about everything and he will deposit by the Holy Spirit's ministry that knowledge into the mind of one of his servants. That's called a word of knowledge where God reveals something that he knows about someone or a situation to one of his servants for the purpose of benefit of ministry. And that's what this is here. So that he could be reproved for his sin and called out and rebuked for his error. God reveals this to Elisha. And so therefore Elisha is able to call him into question about it. And notice this man's heart, the problem is that he is greedy for gain. He just wants to use the work of God and use people for his own personal profit and financial prosperity. And he doesn't care if it jeopardizes God's reputation. And he doesn't care if it means that he has to take advantage of people as long as he can enrich himself financially. And such a sad and tragic thing. And notice, notice God's perspective and God's heart towards that. Verse 27, what happened? It says the Lord smited him with leprosy. The very leprosy that he healed Naaman of, he then took it and he smited Gehazi with that leprosy, which not only gave him an incurable disease as a great judgment, but it also immediately removed him from being able to serve God because in a condition of leprosy, you could not be in the Lord's ministry according to Old Testament Mosaic law. So God removes him from his place of service and God strongly deals with him for what he does because of the greedy, selfish intention in his heart. Look, greed is a very, very dangerous and destructive thing in a human heart. I mean, it just is a really, really dangerous thing in any of our lives. In fact, let, let me just read to you real quickly from 1 Timothy chapter 6 as the Bible addresses the reality and the dangers of greed uh, important for us to realize but it is one of those things that can really shipwreck our lives and our spiritual condition as it's referring to, to false teachers in the New Testament First Timothy 6 it speaks of those who are proud and knowing nothing obsessed with disputes and arguments and then it goes on to speak this of false teachers First Timothy 6 5 it says that they are destitute of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain and it says, from such people withdraw. It says that there are actually those who are in the Lord's work who actually think the things of God is a good way to use the means of personal gain and financial prosperity and enrichment. And you know what? I hate to say this, but it works. And there are lots of people, and I hate to even use the word lots, but I think it's accurate, who do that who use the things of God and the, the cover-up of, of the things of God as a way to basically rip people off and to enrich themselves and profit in different ways by using God-speak and, and just working people in emotional ways and so forth. They think that godliness is a means of gain. And then speaking of the danger of that in our own lives, it says from such people withdraw yourself. In other words, if you see someone doing that, well, what do you do? The Bible says just get away from them. Just stay away from them. That's just not a healthy, sound person to put yourself under that kind of authority if that's what you notice. Verse 6, he then says, Now godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world. It's certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and clothing, 
With these we shall be content. Something to eat, something to wear. But those, listen, who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil for which some having strayed from the faith in their greediness and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. You see the strong language the Bible uses to caution against discontentment and greediness. And listen, you can be discontent and greedy and love money if you're rich or if you're poor. Either way. A lot of times we think that only happens to those who are wealthy. Oh, look, the reality is you can be struggling and living on a very low status financially and be someone who becomes greedy and loves money because you're tired of living at the very basic stature you're living. That's what the Bible says, contentment. And Paul says, I've learned to be content. I've learned to abase and I've learned to abound. And it's not money that is evil. It's the love of money. Where We love money more than we love the Lord. And we love money more than we love just being right where the Lord wants us to be at that stage and season of our life. And he says, some who get caught up in that, he says it becomes a snare and, and it makes them do foolish and harmful things. And many, he says, have drowned and destroyed their spiritual lives all because of this struggle over money in their hearts. So again, just a, a very important thing we need to stay away from, steer clear of, and be capable, you know, careful that we don't allow ourselves to fall prey to what Gehazi did in this chapter. Well, chapter 6 goes on to tell us about another miraculous work of God. It says, The sons of the prophets said to Elisha, See now, the place where we dwell with you is too small, for us, so it seems the location, the meeting place of the school of prophets, the ministry school was, was too small. They were outgrowing their facility. So they said, please, let us go to the Jordan and every man take a beam from there and let us make a place where we may dwell. So he answered and said, go. And then one said, please consent to go with your servants. And he said, I will go. So he went with them. And when they came to the Jordan, they cut down trees. So a very practical thing happening, the space, the facility that they're meeting in, they're beginning to outgrow it. Uh, it can no longer accommodate the work of God that's happening there. So in a very practical way, they begin to realize, okay, the, the space that we are utilizing for God's work, it, it's not functional anymore. They say it's too small for us. It's, it's not properly accommodating God's work. So they say, can we go down to the Jordan? Let's get some timber. Let's, let's generate and, and build a new facility that will accommodate where we're at in the season that we're in. And they say, Elisha, will you come with us? So he goes down with them. And we have this very beautiful picture. They go down to the Jordan, verse 4, and it says they all just start cutting down trees and accruing timber that they're going to need for this building project. And I like this picture here because, again, who is this? This is a group of prophets of the Lord. This is a group who's in a school of ministry. And what I love about it is there's very practical servanthood going on. They're not afraid to roll up their sleeves and get out axes and go out in the woods and cut down trees. They're not saying, look, all we do is prophesy. Could you get some like deacon people or something to go out there and do that kind of stuff? We need to prepare messages. No, they, they, they go out there and they just roll up their sleeves and they do work. And, and they're not afraid to do humble servant 
like work. And they just go out and they start working together. Well, while they're working together, a little dilemma happens. Verse 5, it says, As one was cutting down a tree, the iron axe head, verse 5, fell into the water and he cried out, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. So the man of God said, Well, where did it fall? And he showed him the place. So he cut a st- off a stick, threw it in there, and he made the iron float. Therefore, verse 7, he said, pick it up for yourself. So he reached out his hand and took it. So here they are working. They're doing something that God's directing them to do. And in the midst of it is they're just cutting down the trees. And if you ever, you know, chopped with a, an axe before, you're working. And maybe then the top of the head starts to get a little loose. And you kind of recognize it. But you're thinking, oh, I just want to finish up what I'm doing here. If you're a guy, guys do that kind of stuff. And you're not thinking about the head goes flying off. That wouldn't be good. But it's a bunch of guys down there chopping wood. So they just keep going. Well, I'm just going to finish up, finish up. And then all of a sudden, the iron axe head goes <laughs> flying off. Thankfully, it didn't hit somebody. But it goes flying into the water. Bum, 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 sinks right to the bottom. Well, this is a real dilemma. Look, first of all, because of the fact that iron in that day was more rare in tool use, so it was very valuable. So here's a problem now. You have something that's very valuable that was lost. And last I checked, checked if you have an axe, but it don't have no iron head on it, it's not very useful anymore. Just a wood handle is not going to do anything efficient. So there's a real dilemma here. And then add into that, it wasn't even the guys that was using it. He borrowed it from somebody else. So, oh man, not only did I break somebody's tool, and lose, it's not even my tool. What am I going to do? So he goes to Elisha and he says, well, what am I going to do? And, and there's this dilemma here. And Elisha, just again, certainly being directed by the Lord, he said, well, where did it fall? He shows him the spot. He cuts a stick throws it into the water and the iron axe head comes floating up to the top of the surface. Now, Elisha could have said, you know what, man, I really like people being impressed by my miraculous power. Now I'm going to make it levitate up out of the water and I'm going to draw it across the lake and go right into the guy's hand. But Elisha doesn't do that. He, he lifts it up to the top of the water in verse 7. What does he say? Go pick it up for yourself. <laughs> you go over there and pick it up for yourself. And he reached out his hand and he took it. Again, do you take notice, as I've mentioned before, when you see God showing his miraculous power and his divine you know, strength in situations, God does what man is not able to do. But God also expects men to do what they are able to do. So God does what's impossible. It's a muddy body of water there's an iron exit down at the bottom of it there's no way they're going to find it so god says i'll do my part he miraculously makes the iron axe head come to the top of the water but then right there it stops and he says okay now what you can do is go over there and exert the effort to pick it up out of the water you may get a little wet but you go do your part and you get it out of there and i love how god works truly in a cooperative way He does what we're not able to do, but he does expect us to do what we are able to do. And so whenever we do the Lord's work or we're participating in something God's directing us to do, we need to remember that balance. We need to do what we're able to do. But then we trust God. We commit our works to the Lord and he brings it to pass. And then God does what we're not able to do. 
He does the miraculous. He does the supernatural. He orchestrates things and opens doors and makes things happen that are beyond our capacity. Again, just an interesting miracle. And again, to take in consideration that God does this because God cares about what's important to us. That axe head was important to that poor guy. You may think, an axe head? Who cares about an axe head? Go buy another axe head. Well, that was important to him. And this just reminds me as I look at this story that God cares about what's important to us. That, that thing that just seems like insignificant or menial or... It just, but you know what? If it's important to you, it's important to God. God cares about those things. Those things that are meaningful to you. God wants to help in those situations. And I think this is a beautiful miracle revealing this reality that something valuable is lost and something useful was ruined And it's a miracle of recovery and it's a miracle of restoration. And you know what? Sometimes in the midst of life and just things going on and human error and mistakes, and that certainly could have been a part of this process, sometimes that which is valuable gets lost. Sometimes something that was good and useful gets ruined. And you know what? We serve a God who not only loves and cares about what's going on in our lives, but we serve a God who can see something that was valuable that was lost and he can recover it. He sees something maybe that was once useful and it gets ruined and instead of God just saying, okay, it's ruined forever, God has the ability by his power to intervene and bring about a recovery and a restoration. God's in the miracle working business and he does that here just in this incredible way in this story. Well, verse eight we see another miraculous work of God. It says, Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. And the man of God would send to the king of Israel, saying, Beware, do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. And the king of Israel sent someone to the place of which the man of God had told him, and thus he warned him, and he was watchful there not just once or twice. So take notice what's happening. Here, there's battle happening between Syria and Israel, and periodically the Syrian king would make a decision to go and put his camp in a particular location, and God would reveal to Elisha, the man of God, where the Syrian king was setting up his camp, and Elisha would then go and tell the king of Israel, listen. This is where the king of Syria is going to set up his camp. So be careful. Don't go to that location or you're going to get ambushed. And he kept giving him this intel. And he's offering military intel. He's giving advice and counsel as a man of God to a political leader and to help and assist in military campaigns so that they're protected, so they're not overcome in battle and so they're not defeated. And he keeps revealing this information to help them be successful in battle and not be overcome by the enemy. And I look at this as well and I think, man, not only is that a great example to show how God wants to put godly people, spirit-filled people in places where they rub shoulders with politicians and in the military, would to God, wouldn't it be awesome if instead of needing radar, if we just had more Christians who were the radar in combat zones who could say, Sarge, I just sense the Lord is telling me (laughs) that if we go that direction, we're going to get ambushed. And I know the Lord's told me, and then they would just avoid that and avoid, you know, more, you know, uh, mortal mortal wounds and and fatalities and so forth and be more successful in military campaigns. God needs us everywhere. 
And the Lord so often, even just in the spiritual battles of our life, at times, look, we have an enemy and there are spiritual battles that we experience and God wants to reveal things to us. God doesn't want you to be defeated in battle spiritually. God wants you to walk in victory. And sometimes God will reveal things to us to say, listen, be careful. And sometimes God will identify things to us before we get fatally wounded, before we make a major mistake and get caught in a trap. Listen, when God reveals things, pay attention. Sometimes God will reveal it directly to you. Other times God may reveal it to someone else and they come to you and they caution you. And they say, listen, be careful. You go that direction or you go do that, you're going to get in trouble. You're going to get ensnared by the enemy. You're going to get defeated. And so God here keeps giving this intel to Elisha who keeps giving it to the king of Israel. Well, look what happens. Verse 11. Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called to his servants and said, will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? In other words, he's saying there's a mole among us. There's a traitor who keeps giving away our military location. There must be a traitor in our midst. And one of his servants, verse 12, said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet, who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. (laughs) So he he says, King, I hate to break it to you. There's not a traitor among us. But there's a man who's in touch with God. And the God of Israel knows everything that's going on. And he says, Honestly, king, I hate to break it to you. But he says, You can't even tell your wife something secretive in the bedroom to to whisper something in her ear that he's not aware of what you just said. Now, I mean, you ought to talk about feeling pretty defeated at that point. You can't get away with anything. But you can't hide anything from God. And so here God is working in this unique way. Well, verse 13, it says, the king of Israel said, well, go and see where he is that I may send and get him. Now, I don't know how you're going to capture a guy who knows what you're saying in your bedroom. I mean, uh, that just seems kind of counterproductive, but (laughs) well, I'm going to go get him. Well, As soon as you say you're going to go get him, now he knows you're coming. But nonetheless, uh, it says, he is surely in Dothan. That's about 12 miles north of where they were. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. And they came by night and surrounded the city. And when the servant of the man of God, so it seems that Gehazi is no longer the servant of Elisha, but now maybe a new servant a new assistant. So this is probably a younger man spiritually, a newer convert, less mature. Well, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, arose early and went out and there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? So he sees the city surrounded and the natural response, right? He's terrified. He thinks we're outnumbered. We're, we're defeated. There's nothing. Circumstantially, that looks bad. When you're surrounded, the whole city's surrounded with chariots and horses and the Syrian army who's been on a successful move in the recent season, that looks like we are defeated. We're conquered. There's no way we can overcome this circumstance. It is too hard, too difficult. So he's nervous and he turns to Elisha and he says, what are we going to do? He's basically, he's terrified. What are we going to do? So Elisha answered and said to him, do not fear for those who are with us. It's just him and Elisha standing in the room are, are more than those who are with them. And then Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray open his eyes that he may see. 
Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So the problem notice that was causing fear for the young servant of the Lord was spiritual perception is he was looking at it all from a natural perspective. And the natural circumstances were real. They were scary. They were intimidating. It was impossible, humanly speaking. But all he was doing was looking at it on the natural level. And from his perspective, that's impossible. There's no way. We're going to lose. We're going to be defeated. It's just no way we can succeed. And Elisha is seeing things from a spiritual perspective. Because Elisha sees that the angels... And the host of heaven, the chariots and the armies of God are surrounding that Syrian army out there. So he prays for his servant because he says, look, you don't have to be afraid. Those who are with us are way more than those who are with them. You know, the Bible tells us of angels that they put one foot on the earth and one foot on the sun. Now, that's a bad ombre. You only need one angel. I mean, those are some pretty powerful assistants there. Ministers that God sends to us to help us, his angelic beings. And he looks out and he sees all the angelic, so he's not afraid at all. And he says, don't be afraid. And then he says, Lord, open his eyes. And when his eyes are opened, then all of a sudden he sees things from God's perspective. And you know what? Let me say something. A lot of times, the reason why we get fearful and anxious and overwhelmed and nervous and worried a lot of times is because we only are looking at things from a human perspective. We're just looking at things from on the natural and we're failing to factor in God's perspective. An almighty God with limited resources and all the angelic beings at his disposal and a God who has all power and a God who is for us, who can do miraculous mighty things. And what we need to do in those times when we find ourselves fearful is to say, Lord, open my eyes. Help me to see what you see, God. Help me to see things spiritually, what's going on in the realm of the spirit, not just what I see on the natural level. Because that's the kind of thing that instills faith in our heart and gives us confidence rather than letting us be paralyzed in fear. So his eyes are now open. He sees what Elisha does. So when the Syrians came down to him, a few more verses, it says, Elisha prayed to the Lord. As the army now comes in, Elisha prays again and says, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. And he struck them with blindness according to the word of the Lord. So now the whole Syrian army loses their sight temporarily. And Elijah said to them, this whole blinded army, this is not the way, nor is this the city, but follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria, the capital city of Israel. So it was when they had come to Samaria, about a 10 mile march with a bunch of blind soldiers, they come to Samaria, Elisha then said, once they get in the city, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw, and there they were inside Samaria, exclamation point. <laughs> he marches them right into the center of the capital of Israel, vulnerable, defenseless, brings them in. He says, all right, Lord, open their eyes. Time for the surprise now. Now, I wonder in some ways if Elisha was not have fun with this. Hey, Blind them, they're blinded. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry to hear you guys just got blinded. How did that happen? 
I mean, he just prayed about it before he walked out there. But I'll tell you what, I mean, a whole blind army, let me help you guys. I think I know who you're looking for. <laughs> and he marches them into Samaria. When they get in there, he tells them, uh, you know, he tells God to open their eyes. God opens their eyes. In verse 21, when the king of Israel saw all those soldiers, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? Should we execute them all now? But he answered, you shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? Set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. And then he prepared a great feast for them. And after they ate and drank, he sent them away and they went up to their master. So the bands of the Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So here's an opportunity. They could have been very severe with them. They could have put them all to death. But Elisha, being sensitive again to the heart of the Lord, what does he do? He says, don't kill them. Be kind to them. Give them food and water. Let's bless them. Let's show them the kindness of our God. Let's show them the love of our God, that though we could take revenge, though we could repay them evil for evil, though they are our enemies, let's love them. Let's show them grace and kindness. And no doubt this overwhelmed them because they realized how vulnerable they were and how in a dangerous spot they were. And they were, they were overwhelmed with the kindness and the love that was shown to them that they kind of backed off and no longer hassled them anymore for a season. You know, of course, when we get to the New Testament, we see the Bible encouraging us to do the same thing. Romans 12 says, repay no one evil for evil, but overcome evil with good. Jesus tells us those difficult statements, love your enemies. Bless those, he says, who spitefully use you. Pray for those who persecute you. Because he says, if you treat them like everybody else treats one another, he says, then what makes you any different than other people in the world? It's that marked difference that we actually sometimes can be kind and loving to the people who deserve it the least in our lives. But see, that's the kind of stuff that shocks people. Because people don't know what to do with love. They just don't know what to do with it. Because we live in a very selfish, cruel, unloving world. And that kind of stuff just affects people when we show them that kind of love. You know, I love this statement that appears twice in these verses, in verse uh, 17, and then again there in verse 20, it says, the Lord opened their eyes. You know, I, I tell you something, as we enter back into worship tonight, let me encourage you, one of the greatest works the Lord can do for us is to open our eyes. To open our eyes spiritually. To let us see things from His perspective. To let us see people from His perspective. To let us not look at things with natural eyes. The Bible says we don't you know, look upon what's temporary, but we're to see what's spiritual and eternal that's lasting. That the Lord is in the business of opening people's eyes. He wants to open the eyes of blind people who are not saved, that they might see Jesus Christ. And for us, sometimes as his servants, we just need to pray that kind of a prayer. Lord, would you open my eyes? Open my eyes, Lord. Help me to see it the way you want me to see it. Open my eyes. And the Lord is willing to do that. Let's stand. Let's pray together.